Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey everyone! Wait, sorry. Was this real? We're doing it over. <laughs> yeah. What, what's happening? Another hallucination. Another flashback. Who even am I? Hey everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, and I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on the Breakdown, that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. Bipartisan bill would be good for America and help fix our broken immigration system. Immigration has overtaken concerns about the economy in some polls of U.S. voters, with even Democrats expressing alarm over a crisis at the southern border. So is this the election issue of 2024? Today's guest is an immigration reporter for The New York Times who has covered the issue since former President Donald Trump's tumultuous term. Hamed Aliaziz is part of the Times Washington team covering immigration and the Department of Homeland Security, and he joins us now. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Um, So, you know, I feel like this is one of those issues that everybody likes to talk about, but not everybody understands very well. As I said, you've been you've been watching this and covering it for a while. Can you just kind of set the stage for us? Like, where are we when we talk about the southern border and how does the number of migrants there, the kind of situation compare to years past? Right. The last few years, we've seen we've seen uh, record numbers of people crossing the border. In December alone, there were days where eleven thousand people were cost, crossing the southern border. Uh, you know, each day. And if you look at the numbers during the Biden administration and compare them to the Trump administration, uh, the crossings have almost doubled. So this administration is really struggling with dealing with this mass migration, you know, across the world, across the hemisphere, and and many folks coming to the southern border. And if you had to pick one or two top reasons for that, uh, you know, how much of it is the economic situation in Central America deteriorating or, you know, safety concerns or the Biden administration itself kind of giving a green light? I think it's a combination. If you look at you know Venezuela, where you see the government there crumbling, uh, the economy in a really difficult position, Cuba, who's which their economy tanked uh, during COVID, and other places throughout Central and South America where security concerns are, uh, are, are you know really at the top of minds of people. You know, and so they come to the U.S. They're looking for safety. They're looking for economic opportunity. They're looking for anything. And I think a lot of people saw the Biden administration as the opposite of Trump and as a way to come to the U.S. as a way to uh, resettle here 
and have an opportunity to attend your life. I mean, talk about that, because we've seen coverage of how people documenting their stories on TikTok and other social media have blown up. You hear this narrative, often from the right, you know, critics, more hardline immigration folks that, oh, there's this sense of like open borders under a Democrat. When you talk to migrants who are making, you know, what we should say is a very dangerous journey that I don't think most people would undertake if they didn't feel a need to like how much how much truth is there to that that there is like a narrative that changes over the years um and gives people more of a sort of reason to to undertake that journey yeah i was just speaking to a colombian woman who resettled in the bay area recently and she certainly was aware of you know this idea that the the border was you know more friendly more open to, to migrants than in years past but for her the main reason she made the journey from Colombia to the U.S. was what she said were the serious security concerns that she had. I mean, you know, really uprooting her entire life, uh, you know, selling her home, taking all of, uh, you know, her belongings with her with her child, her, you know, 15-year-old child. You know, these are types of um, risks that I think oftentimes folks are going to take regardless. And it depends on, um, you know, the administration Republican or Democrat, how they they handle people coming to the southern border. If you think back to the situation when Biden took office, we had seen, you know, months or even years of unaccompanied minors, of kids being separated from their parents. And that was really an outrage for a lot of people, including, I think, Joe Biden. Uh, But he also paused deportations uh, almost immediately after taking office. Um, What impact did that have, do you think, in terms of accelerating that message like, hey, the border's more friendly, let's go? Yeah, it's always hard to measure, you know, how these types of messages get 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 spread and how what type of impact they have. That specific, the deportation pause, was you know a major uh, you know platform for a lot of uh, you know liberal and, and and left lawmakers and advocates on this issue. They really wanted something like that, and so it was a bit surprising to see you know. President Biden, who is you know known more as, as a moderate, to do this on day one, it took me by surprise for sure. It's important to note that that deportation pause was blocked in federal court mm. within a few days, and it never really had the chance to take full effect. But you know, one could argue that that message to to people across the hemisphere was that there wasn't going to be enforcement in the U.S. Yeah. So, I mean, on the other hand, you know, you had someone like Biden who campaigned really on this message of ending these harsh practices. And yet I think, you know, three years in, a lot of folks on the left are pretty disappointed with the way he has responded to this, the policies he's kept in some cases from Trump without going like too deep into Title 42 and everything. But I mean, how would you sort of assess like what what Biden has done? How much has he changed since Trump? What has he not done? What's been surprising? Yeah, I mean, look, they've they've rebuilt the refugee system. The refugee numbers are going back up after like, you know, historic drop during the Trump administration, which absolutely gutted the refugee program. You're seeing, you know, major efforts to allow migrants different pathways to come to the U.S. For example, Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans and Venezuelans have this opportunity to apply to come to the U.S. and uh, be here um, under a program known as parole for two years, which could be renewed 
if they have a financial sponsor in the U.S. And there's so there's all these different programs they've 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 put in place uh, for people. Ukrainians have had a chance to come to the U.S. to flee the war there if they had financial sponsors in America. But if you really look at the southern border, you can see that this administration has turned toward you know more restrictive measures to try to really deter migrants from coming to to try to bring those numbers down. I think the border has kind of swallowed up uh, a lot of the the bigger goals this administration had when they first came in. I mean, there was talk of getting rid of private prisons, you know, you know, big, big lofty goals. And, and some of those just haven't been realized because the border has sucked up so much energy. As you've said, there are a lot of reasons you can't necessarily point to one thing. But one thing you can say is different is the role of social media. And we've seen stories and uh, other things online um, about TikTok videos being created by migrants and basically encouraging folks to come. Looks like they're, you know, they're having a, like almost a good time in some places. Uh, and, and they're very popular. I mean, they go viral. What, what, what's your sense of the impact of those? It's huge. I mean, one of the biggest things is, you know, when you speak to officials is the word of mouth, you know, people abroad saying that, uh, you know, their their neighbors, their friends, their family members are able to come to the U.S. Uh, they made it in. They, they, they weren't, you know, arrested. They weren't deported. And it sends a signal, um, these officials say, that, you know, there's a chance to come here and that they should take the risk and come to the United States. Um, so it, it plays a major, major part, and it's the, the U.S. government is very focused on this kind of proliferation of um, videos. When you say focused, like what can they do? What are they trying yeah. to do? I think they're just aware of it. They they recognize you know these these trends. They recognize that that people are spreading this message. Um, and, and it's very sophisticated. People are very, you know, in tune with how American policy changes, and uh, you know, they they take it in their own hands and, and make uh, changes accordingly. It kind of reminds me of we've talked about this. Like, if you go and cover prisons in the U.S., like how much folks inside prisons are following the policy debates to the way more than a lot of average yeah. people. I mean, it makes sense. It's what impacts you. Um, I mean, before we go to a break, I just want to ask: like, we're talking obviously about the southern border, and I would imagine most people coming that way are from Central Latin America broadly. But we've also heard stories that people um, are flying into places like Mexico so that they can cross on foot and make asylum claims. How like widespread would you say that is? Is that a tiny portion of folks, or do we think that that's a growing number? Yeah, um, I couldn't say specifically, but it certainly is a big deal. I, there, there's a lot of people who, who do that, and you know, one of the things Mexico has done in the last few years is restrict um, some of the visas for people traveling to Mexico and making it a little bit more difficult. Uh, for people to be able to make that easy flight and cross into uh, the U.S. I mean, I believe they did this for Venezuelans, and afterward we saw this real spike of Venezuelans uh, going through the Darien Gap on their way to the U.S. All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we will continue talking with New York Times immigration reporter Hamed Aliaziz, and we'll get into how this is going to impact the 2024 presidential election. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, here with Scott Schaefer. And today we're talking with New York Times immigration reporter Hamed Aliaziz. I want to talk a little bit about Mexico. Um, what is the sort of status of the relationship between the nations when it comes to, you know, how they're handling this? I know it won- because a lot of people are coming like through Mexico. Um, how would you sort of characterize the relationship between the Biden administration and them and where Mexico is at on all of this very complicated issue? It's a crucial relationship for this administration, for any administrations. You know, this administration has taken a different tack than the Trump administration. We saw that during Trump there were threats of, uh, you know, tariffs to try to to get more enforcement uh, at the southern border. This The Biden administration has really emphasized, you know, diplomacy and, and sending key leaders to Mexico regularly to speak with the president there. You know, Mexico, you see the difference in, um, you know, more enforcement at, at the southern border, uh, you know, in Mexico and the effect it has on the southern border. If you just compare December numbers to January, December, there were more than 300,000 encounters. And already in January, uh, we're seeing, a, you know, a steep drop off um, after Mexico really stepped up its enforcement of, you know, stopping people from, uh, you know, being able to get on these trains headed to the southern border uh, and elsewhere. So the Biden administration increasingly relies on Mexico uh, to help them, you know, get the numbers down at the border. I was surprised when Trump came in that Mexico's president, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who is, you know, more of a leftist, I think, uh, in, in, in Mexican politics, that he seemed to get along extremely well with Trump. Uh, and that kind they of a really... populist, too, though, right? <laughs> yeah, he's a populist. But I'm wondering, like, do you have any sense of what he got from that? Um, and, you know, how is how is he responding now if, uh, to these you know, threats to use the military against drug cartels? I realize that's a separate topic, but I guess I'm asking, like, the politics on this side of the border, how do they affect politics on the southern side in Mexico? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, trying to, you know, figure out, you know, what's happening in the the palace there in Mexico is, you know, quite difficult. But I would say that, um, you know, it it did seem like the the president of Mexico wanted, you know, more, uh, you know, consideration from this administration and, you know, more access to the president and have a, you know, have somewhat of a, you know, kind of be courted in a way. And you've really seen this administration, you know, pick up its diplomacy, you know, the Blinken, the Secretary of State going there to Mexico several times in the last few months is an indication that 
this administration is taking that relationship so very, you know, very seriously. And I, as far as the the military stuff, there's no way that Mexico would be okay with something like that. But, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see down the line what happens. Yeah. Uh, it does strike me Blinken has some other things on his plate in the Middle East and elsewhere. So the fact that he's, you know, making the trip is in itself yeah, sort of indicative of, yeah. of where things are at. I mean, I'm curious, like before I want to get into the politics of this border deal that seems to have fallen apart in, in D.C. in 2024. But I feel like we have to mention this issue of like drug trafficking and fentanyl. Um, I know earlier this week, David talked on your on the show about how. David pot, Downs. David Downs, who's actually my <laughs> husband, uh, talked about how pot is actually being exported into Mexico now because of cannabis legalization here. But there's a lot of narrative around fentanyl and other dangerous opioids and meth and stuff coming up from there. How big of an issue do you see that as? I mean, so much of what we're talking about is really either human trafficking or people, you know, coming for asylum claims. Yeah, it's a big issue. And, you know, it's one of those issues that you'd expect there to be some you know, bipartisan agreement to crack down on on fentanyl and, um, you know, the, the drug trade, but it's kind of fallen into this uh, partisan back and forth, uh, you know, people blaming, uh, you know, the DHS secretary, the policies for, for leading, you know, the surge in fentanyl. Uh, but, you know, this, this administration, DHS is, you know, they've said repeatedly that they're focused on cracking down and they've publicized multiple you know, uh, arrests and uh, busts of fentanyl so at the border. So, um, you know, it continues to be a massive issue. Uh, yeah. I want to talk about the domestic politics here and in particular how the governors of Texas, Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis in Florida, what they have done in terms of busing migrants uh, up to Martha's Vineyard and up to, I think, uh, Kamala Harris's, you know, front door uh, and to New York like City. Literally. Literally, yeah. I, I, so what impact do you think that has? I mean, it's, I suppose you could say it's a smart political move, but it's using human beings as pawns and a very complicated issue. It kind of uh, seems like it's paid off for them, though. It does. What's your take? Yeah, I think it completely changed the game. I think, you know, they're... This idea, you know, at the beginning, it started out sending buses to Washington, D.C., and it was small scale, but we really saw them pour, Texas poured a bunch of resources into, you know, sending people on these buses to New York City, to Chicago. And since then, you've seen these cities come out and actually call for the Biden administration to get the border under control, call for more resources, really shed light on um, you know, what's happening in their streets and the increase in migrants coming to their cities. And it's kind of, you know, I think been a game changer and ultimately has paid off for, for the governor. Um, you know, obviously people say that, yes, this is, um, uh, you know, not ethical to put people on these buses and send them to these cities. But uh, strictly speaking on a political manner, I mean, I think it, you know, this, this administration has been caught kind of in a defensive position trying mm -hmm. to react to uh, the the busing. I mean, yeah. I mean, you see like Mayor Eric Adams talking about it destroying the city. It's really driven this wedge. I wonder though, like something I've always sort of been curious about, and I don't know if you have any insight. I grew up in San Diego and it feels like in California specifically, this is not as kind of hot button of an issue, even in border cities like San Diego, where we do know people cross illegally through, you know, swaths, especially in Eastern County. Um, why do you think the politics are so different in a place like Texas or Arizona? And then 
even in these democratic cities that are, you know, I think, I mean, we see the resource strain. That makes sense. But do you have any sense of like why California has not been as outraged over this, let's say? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the keys is the numbers are just different in a place like Texas, the the number of people coming through places like, you know, Del Rio and El Paso and elsewhere are just um, way higher. Uh, and so for border towns there, they're more easily overwhelmed and the resources are stretched. Um, and I think we've seen that this uh, this this effort to bus people, it's really been targeted at, at New York and Chicago and D.C. Certainly he's sent some, uh, there's been buses sent to California as well, but the numbers are, are much lower than, than other places. So I, I think California has been somewhat spared uh, from, from these, you know, the, the numbers of Venezuelans, for example, mm. coming to the U.S., they're often going to New York and to Florida and elsewhere. So that's where you see uh, more of a, a reaction. Well, and um, I think the, they were trying to target like sanctuary cities and, and places right. like that, right? Which is also ironic because you see this whole case playing out in Texas now where the Texans are trying to argue that they have jurisdiction when for years they've said, crack down on sanctuary cities. This is the purview of the federal government. Yeah, and they, and they, they lost at the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. If you're just joining us, by the way, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Our guest today is New York Times immigration reporter Hamid Aliaziz. Um, I want to talk about what's been happening or not happening now in Washington with this negotiation. The Republicans kind of drew a line in the sand. They said, we're not going to even talk about aid for Ukraine and Israel until we have some kind of a deal on the border and increasing border security. And it seemed like the Biden administration really was all in on that. They were maybe recognizing the severity of this as a political issue. And now they've backed away, the Republicans have. What is your read on why that deal almost came together and why it's fallen apart. I think this president, one of his key accomplishments and focuses has been Ukraine and supporting uh, Ukraine and its war against Russia. So, you know, I think the the president is, is just, you know, willing to do whatever to get that aid. And he's really focused on getting that aid. Ultimately, on the border issue, though, in immigration, especially in in Congress, it's so complicated um, and the two sides are so far apart at this point that any type of deal just feels, you know, impossible. Now, I, you know, word today came down that there should be some text of, uh, you know, this this deal from the Senate coming through uh, imminently in the next few days. But even if it passes the Senate, you really just don't see any chance of uh, it passing in the House with the uh, Speaker of the House already coming out against it, saying that the you know former President Trump has told them that it's a bad deal. Right. You know the prospects of it uh, seem you know very very low, uh, but you know you never know. Never say never. But I mean, to your point. It feels like the former president is still driving so much of this debate and conversation. I mean, starting with, obviously, the way he opened his 26 campaign, running on the wall. Um, and yet, I mean, it seems like to some extent public opinion has shifted more to his side. right? I mean, we're talking about a deal with Democrats that has none of the things that they would have you know, seen as non-starters before, DACA, a pathway for other immigrants. So, like, can you just talk about, like, Trump's role in all this and how you see that playing out? Is this is it because of his political skills or is it sort of 
I don't know, has he lucked out, so to speak, with like how big of a crisis it's become? There's such a difference between, you know, these two administrations. I mean, if you look back at Trump, um, and he was tweeting and talking about immigration constantly and made it such a big part of their administration, all the changes they were making. I mean, every single week it felt like there was a new policy rollout or, you know, some gutting of a former uh, previously bipartisan effort like the refugee system. Whereas this administration is kind of immigration is like the fifth or sixth issue that's discussed. And it's always in the context of other things. So it does feel that that Trump is able to, you know, set the narrative, set yeah. the talking points. The Republicans are really, uh, you know, pushing this idea of the border from the border crisis from the beginning of the Biden administration. They made immigration like their top target. And constantly this the Biden administration is kind of, again, on the defensive, mm-hmm. trying to show the different things that they've done, trying to show that they do believe in a tough border. They do believe in, in, in laws at the border. And for the Biden administration, it's it's been very difficult having to deal with these increases in numbers and the you know a, a government process that is really not built to handle uh, three hundred thousand people crossing every you know a month. That's just um, it's wild. Know, I mean, it's a hard, lot of hard to, yeah, hard to get your head around. One of the things Biden has said recently is, "Look, if you can't pass a deal, a bipartisan deal that I would sign, if you won't do that, then give me the authority to shut down the border, and I will do that." Uh, what would that look like? What is what he does talking that mean? about? Yeah. Yeah, there was an interesting uh, turn of phrase there, very similar to the kind of uh, the language that we saw in the last administration. My understanding of him, you know, that was, again, you know, my assessment of it was that it was in the context of the, the, the supplemental deal. And there is a, you know, discussion in that deal where, you know, if there's a certain number of people that have crossed the border uh, throughout the week, that there'd be an ability for border agents to turn back migrants very quickly, akin to what we saw during the uh, pandemic where border agents were able to use a provision known as Title 42 to uh, send migrants back to Mexico without considering their asylum claims. But as far as, you know, totally shutting down the border, um, you know, we'll have to see what comes out of this deal. There's, you know, there's there's little that can be done uh, outside of that. Yeah, I mean, it feels like, a lot of what Republicans are kind of pushing over, like, it just raises the question, like, well, then why didn't Trump do that? Or what? I mean, the the president doesn't have a magic wand here, right? Like, I guess the question would be, like, what do you see then in the weeks and months ahead for this Biden administration? How what tools, if any, are at their disposal that they haven't used yet? I mean, they've used a lot of them, right? I mean, they they tried to do a version of a Trump asylum, uh, you know, ban restriction at the southern border. They've run into some resource issues as so many people have come and there's only a limited number of um, officers that they have to to process people through this new, very restrictive asylum policy. Uh, That's been that's been hard. But Again, I think this administration is just going to lean toward deterrence. Look through any ways they can. Uh, Maybe that's the-, the shut down the border comment, right? It's like to send a yeah. message. But it, yeah. you know, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. 
No, I mean, a lot of these things, you know, that Trump tried were blocked by the courts. I mean, attempts to to block asylum, attempts to, you know, stop people from being allowed to cross the border without authorization. A lot of these things were blocked in federal court, oftentimes in California. So, you know, there's a there's a difficult legal path as well. You mentioned a lack of resources. And one of the places that is true is in the immigration courts. And a lot of these folks who are coming in, they're seeking asylum. They get a court date sometimes four years, five years down the road. And I read that like in Los Angeles, and I think it was 2022 or maybe last year, 72 percent didn't even show up for their hearing. Um, And so what, what is the solution there? I mean, you could add a lot of immigration judges, I guess, and have these things processed more quickly. But, you know, there is no magic bullet, is there? No, and the immigration courts are often forgotten as this, you know, as a, as a major part of this system. But everything is really connected, right? I mean, I think if you uh, poured a bunch of resources into the immigration courts and you were able to process people and get all these deportation orders, you would need to have um, at, at the same time more resources for ICE officers to pick up those people to um, get them ready for deportation. Some people uh, do not want to be deported, and so they will you know, not cooperate with ICE and, and voluntarily show up at the ICE offices for the flight. So, you know, as a country, you know, there's a real consideration there of, you know, are we willing to not only fund the immigration courts, but ICE and add more ICE officers that I can actually implement and pick up people after they've received um, the removal orders. That is New York Times Immigration and Department of Homeland Security reporter Ahmed Aliaziz. Thank you so much for your time today. Congrats on the pretty new job. We used to work together with the Chronicle, so it's been fun to watch your uh, career. Oh, thank you so much. That's so kind of you. I'm excited to be here. All right. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is the fabulous Christopher Beale. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm the fabulous Marisa Lato. Yes, you are. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 